evening to you. Let's turn to the gospel, Mark's gospel, chapter 15 this evening, Sunday nights, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and uh, you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just flag them and uh, get their attention, and they'll be happy to give you a Bible marked to where we're studying this evening. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you tonight. We uh, remember that Jesus, by the time we come to Mark chapter 15, that Jesus, on the morning of His crucifixion, He endured two trials. One was a religious trial, which was the greatest affront of all by the Jewish religious leaders, and then the other was a secular trial before Pontius Pilate. Uh, we're going to study uh, this evening that second trial, that uh, secular trial before Pontius Pilate here, uh, here this evening. But it is good to remember that, that all of this, him ultimately standing before Pontius Pilate to be on trial, it all began with a question uh, that was asked of him in verse 61 of chapter 14. And uh, where uh, we read, and, uh, but he kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of uh, the Blessed? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Jesus had remained silent before all of their other questions because they had not asked a question that was worthy of an answer. Finally, they do ask one, and what a question it was. And uh, they're completely unprepared for the answer. Jesus responded and said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The religious trial was in order to find some accusation against Jesus by the religious Jewish leaders in order to uh, find him guilty of some kind of a crime that was worthy of death. And they uh, esteemed his declaration to be the Messiah and the very Son of God to be blasphemy and declared, what further evidence do we need than this than to, uh, you know, be done uh, with him? The problem that the Jewish religious leaders faced at that time in their attempt to destroy Jesus and, and in order to uh, kill him is that under the Roman Empire, the Romans kept uh, the right of capital punishment to themselves. Uh, no group of people within the Roman Empire, the, the uh, nation of Israel, uh, Israel itself, uh, the Jews, nobody had a right to enact uh, a capital punishment. And so, of necessity, the Jewish religious leaders must get Rome involved in order to secure the death uh, of Jesus. And so, uh, so they do. And uh, it actually, I mean, God knows how this whole thing was going to unfold prophetically in the Old Testament, and it's only right, only appropriate that, that ultimately Jews, Jesus ends up being crucified uh, in the coordinated participation of both Jew and Gentile, both the Romans and the Jews. The Jews, of course, the, the persecution so much in their history uh, against them, some of the worst kind of pogroms that were brought against them as, Jew, uh, as Jesus killers and so forth. Uh, very ignorant of the Scriptures, anyone that had engaged in that kind of thing or would be tempted to engage in it uh, today. 
And uh, the Jews certainly, the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus was very popular among the common people. But the Jewish religious leaders, they, uh, you, you know, they uh, really had their, got their hands dirty in all of this. Uh, but the Gentile side of things is no cleaner, as we'll see in Pontius Pilate. And, uh, and I think it would be a horrible thing if the Romans had not become involved in some way. God had not orchestrated it in order that both Jew and Gentiles would be represented in this crucifixion, lest uh, persecution be meted out uh, solely uh, upon uh, the Jews, or that they would be seen historically and biblically as the ones who were uh, solely responsible for it. And so here, uh, Jesus is delivered to uh, Pilate by the Jewish religious leaders. The charade of a trial that they had put him on was, was over, and, uh, and now they bring him to, to uh, Pilate. And immediately in the morning, uh, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate for exactly the purposes that I have been uh, talking about here. Pontus was the Roman procurator uh, of that region of the Roman Empire. He was essentially a uh, governor over Judah and over uh, Jerusalem. He was handpicked by the current Caesar at the time, a Caesar by the name of Tiberius, to occupy this role. And uh, like all governors or procre all procreators within uh, the Roman uh, Empire, he represented the Roman, uh, Roman Empire. He represented the authority uh, of Caesar himself in Jerusalem and, and in, uh, uh, in uh, Judea. And so all of the power, all of the authority, all the everything that was in, invested in, uh, in uh, Tiberius uh, was now a, a part of, of uh, Pilate's uh, authority and power, and, and the full weight of the Roman Empire stood behind him in his, his decision-making. Very, very powerful uh, man. And Pilate then asked Jesus and, uh, and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is interesting that he would raise that as a question. It fills some blanks in for us. Uh, some of the other gospels do it for us as well. But you wonder what accusation did the Jewish religious leaders bring to Pilate in order to get him involved in this trial related to Jesus. And here we see clearly that Jesus had been brought before Pontius Pilate with the accusation that he made himself out to be the king of the Jews. The Jewish religious leaders couldn't possibly, uh, they, they knew better than to bring Jesus before Pilate and to say, listen, uh, we consider him to be worthy of death on the basis of bla uh, his blasphemy related to his claim uh, to be both the Messiah and the Son of God. Pilate would have drummed him right out of the room. Uh, Pilate didn't care anything about that. He didn't care about the worship of whatever God. The, the Roman Empire was filled with all kinds of gods. They worshipped nature. They worshipped anything and everything. He didn't care and wasn't going to get involved that somebody uh, was worshipping this thing and somebody believed this, but somebody else thought they shouldn't believe it. He could never be pulled into this trial in that way. But when they bring Jesus to him and declare that he declares in your backyard, to be, the, to, to be the king of the Jews, now he has Pilate's attention. 
because now it looks as if Jesus is trying to raise up an insurrection against uh, Rome. And it's very carefully crafted uh, a, a device that the, the Jewish religious leaders are, are using here. We know from one of the other Gospels that they brought an additional charge against Jesus that he was teaching everywhere uh, in Israel and in Jerusalem that uh, the Jews need not pay taxes to Rome. Uh, that would have really gotten the attention of Pilate. Uh, one thing Rome paid a lot of attention to was the money flow from their provinces. So we see just the, really the ugliness of how, uh, you know, they talk about how, um, uh, you, uh, what's the old saying about numbers, you know, you, uh, liars can what and you can figure and that. You, they're just manipulating the, the whole thing. Uh, just ugly, ugly craftiness on, on the part of religious leaders who claim to represent God. And, uh, but this is the means by which they're intending to, uh, to frame Jesus and, and uh, get a guilty uh, 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 sentence from Pilate and, and, uh, and have him crucified. And so Pilate then asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him because it was a question that was worthy of answering. And he says, it is as you uh, say. In other words, that is absolutely correct. I am the king of the Jews. And then with that, the chief priests, they accused him of many things. But Jesus uh, answered uh, nothing. Even as Isaiah said, he would be uh, silent before his accusers as it was prophesied. And so he, all of these uh, accusations are being brought against him and in their fervor to have him crucified. And as Pilate is sitting here and he's watching Jesus in the midst of this uh, whole wall of accusations being brought uh, against him, uh, he, uh, he asked Jesus again, and he's and saying, uh, verse uh, 4, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. Now, Pilate has been in this situation hundreds of times in the course of his being the governor of Judea. He was used to accusations being brought against all kinds of criminals, all kinds of people. And what he was used to as a reaction on the part of someone who was being accused was that he would watch them squirm and he would watch them try to defend themselves and dispute the accusations that were being made against him. And, uh, and he put many, many people, uh, sentenced them to death in this very same scene and watched that the normal reaction of a person in that environment would be to defend themselves to the death. And yet when he, he sees Jesus, he sees something entirely different. He's probably never seen anyone who is in danger of having his life lost on the basis of this trial stand quiet before the accusations that are being made uh, against him there. And it impacts him so much that he asks Jesus, aren't you going to defend yourself? Aren't you going to combat these accusations that are being made against you? But Jesus still answered nothing. Because as serious as the accusations were, they were all false. And they weren't worthy of an answer. And they weren't worthy of a defense on, on his part. And after all, he had come uh, to be crucified anyway. And the reaction of Pilate to all of this is, is that he, he marveled. Now, 
at the feast, uh, he was, uh, Pilate was accustomed to releasing one prisoner uh, to the Jewish people, whomever they requested. Uh, ever on, uh, at the time of the feast of the Passover is a way to kind of build bridges between the Jewish people and the Roman governor in Jerusalem at that time. There's tremendous uh, uh, hatred, uh, from, uh, not only by the Jews toward the Romans, but the Romans toward the Jews. And so once a year is kind of a good faith uh, gesture on the part of, of the Romans. The, uh, the Romans would release a prisoner at the time of the Passover uh, of the Jews choosing for, for him uh, to be uh, released as this goodwill uh, gesture. And I think that Pilate thinks that he knows this whole thing is a charade. He's going to see, it was seen a moment in verse 10, that uh, he knew that the chief priest had handed Jesus over because of envy. He knew this was a farce. He didn't take any of the charges seriously, that any of them were true at all. He recognized what was going on. And he, he has to have this sense of, uh, uh, you don't become a ruler like he is. I mean, rulers in those days, the way they bargained themselves up into their positions, they knew how to manipulate, they knew how to work the system, they knew how to climb over people to get into their position. They knew how to manipulate, and they knew when they were being manipulated. And Pilate has to have a very strong sense of the fact that he's been pulled into something that he really doesn't want to be a part of and uh, that he's being pulled in on the basis of this game that the Jewish religious leaders are, are playing. And now he's looking for a diplomatic way uh, to get out of it. And so he decides that what he's going to do potentially is to release Jesus and free him related to all of this on the basis of saying, why don't I, I make Jesus the prisoner that we, uh, the, the, the prisoner that we release every year? Why don't we make Jesus that this year? I think in Pilate's mind, it is they're going to ultimately cry out for Barabbas uh, to be released. And I think that when, when, uh, when Pilate here comes and suggests the release of Jesus as a part of this gesture, it doesn't even enter into his mind that the Jewish religious leaders would go so low as to demand the crucifixion of Jesus and then uh, request the uh, release of Barnabas. But that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, he, it, it, he's being shocked internally on some level by degrees as, as the whole scene is unfolding. But he sees an out here now of making Jesus that, that prisoner that is, uh, is released. And we're told of the other person that comes into the scene uh, historically here. And, and uh, uh, so Jesus is a prisoner, but there was another prisoner by the name of Barabbas, and he was chained with his fellow rebels, uh, uh, doubtless Jewish men who had rebelled against, some, led some kind of rebellion against uh, the Roman Empire in Jerusalem or in the area of, of Judea. And in the course of it, they had even committed murder. I mean, this is absolutely uh, a capital crime in, in Jewish eyes, in, uh, in, in terms of Roman law. So they are, they're waiting to be executed, he and his uh, compatriots, and 
and Barabbas as well. And then the multitude crying aloud. Uh, and we know that the Jewish religious leaders from other Gospels uh, began to charge the people up uh, to ask him to do what, uh, what Pilate had always done in releasing a prisoner uh, to them. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? This is his way out of a sticky situation. For he knew. I mean, Pilate, Pilate is not deceived here. The decision that he makes is an awful one. Uh, but, but he's not fooled at all. It was, uh, he understands exactly what is happening. He knew that the chief priest had handed Jesus over uh, because of envy. And because he was fully aware of the dynamics that was happening, he uh, completely responsible for uh, how the whole thing is, is going to turn out. And the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they would rather release Barabbas uh, to them. And Pilate then said to them again, what do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? This is starting to unravel on him now. I mean, he's going into territory that was inconceivable in his mind in terms of, of, of the, the Jewish people and the treatment of Jesus, who he knows to be completely innocent. And so they cried out again, crucify him. And then Pilate, in a, in a confession of Jesus' absolute innocence of any charges made against him, he said, why? What evil has he done? What, what is he guilty of that's worthy of death? But they cried out, all the more, uh, crucify him. And so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, he delivered Barnabas to them to be freed. Imagine. And then he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And so he now makes the decision that is, he wants to gratify the crowd. It's politically expedient to him. And uh, so he makes a disastrous decision. And th this whole progression of what's, what's going on here, I mean, it, uh, Pilate is... is is the poster child for now how not to make a major decision within our life. He is the absolute poster, poster child of how not to handle the decision that I'm going to make concerning the innocence of Jesus Christ or not, or what I'm going to do with him related to my life. And what Pilate ought to have done, the moment he knew that this was a scam, this was a setup and a manipulation, he ought to have done the right thing and spoken to the crowd and the religious leaders and said, this man is innocent, I see what you're trying to do, I won't play any part of it, and then walked off of the, the front steps of his palace and then into the praetorium, shut the door, and it would have been the end of things. And in terms of human history, the name of Pontius Pilate would have uh, gone down as one of the heroes in human history. But that's not what he did. He made his decision concerning Jesus Christ on the basis of the crowd. Peer pressure, wanting to please people rather than doing the right thing that he ought to have done. It, it, there is never a better time to do the right thing than... In the, the moment we realize that it's right, it only gets harder to do the right thing the longer we fail to do that. I think that most of us have had those experiences within our life 
where we look how something got a life and it got some momentum and it started to move and we look and say, I wish I would have said no back there. How much easier my life would be. Now look at who's involved and how twisted it's become and how involved it's become. I wish I'd have done the right thing the moment I knew what the right thing was. It's all, uh, the, the moment we understand what the right thing to do is, is the moment to do the right thing. And everything would have changed for him. But we know that God in His foreknowledge and in His providence knew that all of this was going to come down this way. And I think that one of the reasons that he paints as thorough a picture of uh, Pilate here in the Scriptures as he does the religious leaders on the scene is because he's painting a picture of how not to handle the decision that we make concerning uh, Jesus Christ. And, and to never make a decision on the, uh, concerning Jesus, His innocence, the fact that He is the Messiah and that He is the Son of God on the basis of what my peers think or what the crowd thinks or what my family thinks or the majority thinks. It's always been a minority that has gotten this question uh, right. If we go with the majority in, in this fallen world, we'll always uh, be on the wrong side uh, of, of that, uh, that decision. Interesting thing and, and so important, uh, you know, when we, when we look at Pilate and we see how badly he mishandles the entire situation here. Uh, but to realize that Pontius Pilate... Uh, the, the reason he is known around the world today in human history is because of the decision that he made concerning Jesus Christ. That's how we know him. If, if he were not in this scene and did not make the decision that he had made, he would be uh, in one or two sentences in terms of Roman history in the Middle East in some kind of dusty uh, book in some, you know, the library uh, of Edinburgh or something like that. But he's known to all of us. And he's known to all of us and known in all of human history on the basis of what he did with Christ. And what is true of Pontius Pilate will be true of every single person in this world. We will ultimately become known uh, for one thing and one thing alone, and that is what did we do with Christ. Ultimately, when every single human being enters into uh, eternity, however much money we've had or been a part of a kingdom or a Roman empire or a governor over a, prov a province, how much food we ate or things that we had, none of that is going to be remembered about any of our lives. The only thing that will ever live on and be remembered about our lives supremely is what we did with Christ. And what is true of Pontius Pilate is true of every person in this room. And that's why we want to be on the right side of Christ, and the right side of God. But it's also true of every single person in this world. The question, and you've heard me say it through the years, the question that Jesus posed to the Jewish religious leaders at one time in their rejection of Him. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? And He posed the question, which of you convict me of, of a single sin, a single reason for rejecting me as the Messiah and as the Son of God and my claims? And the answer that they had was absolute silence. And only Jesus then broke that silence with a second question of why do you not then, uh, you know, uh, believe that, that I am Him or believe the things that I've, I've said. And, 
and that's the question that every person will be asked one day, is which of you convicts me of sin? What is the reason for rejecting me as Messiah and the Son of God? And just as is the case in this trial, there is no good reason. Only make-believe stuff, only false accusations, false uh, understandings of his teachings, or, or malice toward him, or whatever it, it, it might uh, be. You make that decision. I wake up every single morning, independent of my marriage, independent of you, independent of my family, independent of every peer in my life. And I choose whether I'm going to walk with God uh, today or I'm not going to walk with God. And with the desire that that will mark my life all the way to my final, final breath. And every single one of us in this room and every Christian must choose to do that on our own. There is a corporate side to Christianity that is wonderful, but there's another part of it that is completely individual, and and that is to make this decision between us and God on the basis of what we know about Jesus Christ from the highest authority uh, that exists, and that is the Word of God, and to not in any way be tainted by any other human being in that decision that, that we make. Pilate it, it, it takes and not only uh, gratifies the crowd in releasing uh, Barabbas to them, but he then delivered Jesus uh, uh, to be crucified after he had uh, Jesus uh, scourged. And the scourging that it would have been meted out upon Jesus here, a terrible, terrible kind of beating that was given to him, and it was called the half-death because the idea is if somebody is guilty of a capital crime, they're going to be crucified anyway. We don't want them hanging on that cross any longer than they need to, and so let's deliver them to be crucified in a half-dead uh, condition. And so they would take the, the wooden handle and they would take the whips. There would be somewhere between three and nine uh, of the whips, bone and, and glass and pottery embedded in the leather uh, tongs. And then they would uh, proceed to, to beat uh, the, uh, the prisoner. And it wasn't unusual for people to lose an eye, for their vital organs to be opened up. And the beating was from head to toe. It, it, was the Jews, it was the Jews that on the basis of mercy would only mete out as a maximum 39 stripes in terms of this kind of a punishment against a person. But the Jews, the, 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 the Romans knew no such limit. Uh, they would beat them until they had beaten half of their life out of them. And these Roman uh, soldiers that were a part of this in the Praetorian uh, Guard, they were experts in death. They could know how much blood a person uh, could lose before they would go into shock and, and not to have them die of the scourging, but ultimately have them breathing upon that cross to die as an example of, of fighting uh, against, uh, against Rome. And Jesus is delivered uh, to this. 
And one of the purposes of a scourging was to uh, elicit confessions from people that were guilty of capital crimes, to find out what other crimes did you commit, and to clear up some of the back crime that hadn't been solved in the Roman Empire or in the area. And, uh, and people would confess the crimes that they had committed in order that there would be fewer lashes that would be meted out upon them before they went to the cross. They had no hope of escaping the cross. But, the, but the, the scourging was so bad, they desperately wanted to, to be freed from that. And the interesting thing about Jesus is because He was the Lamb of God without sin, without spot, without blemish, He had no crime, no sin, no fault that He could confess to these uh, uh, who were uh, scourging Him in, in order to lessen their blows. And so uh, they, uh, they beat Him. Uh, in this way, in preparation uh, for being crucified. And then the soldiers, as Jesus is taken then at this particular point in time, delivered over to uh, the praetorian guard. The soldiers led him away into the hall called praetorium, and uh, they called together the entire garrison. Uh, this, uh, uh, Mark makes mention of it, it evidently it was unusual. There are approximately 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers, that were uh, committed to duty in, in that Antonia fortress in, in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem there. And they don't want to just have, as would be normal, uh, three, four, five, six of them deal with what uh, uh, preparing Jesus for the cross. They call all of them out. They're going to make a, an absolute spectacle of him. Now remember, uh, the, the, Jews did, the Jews hated the Romans, and the Romans hated the Jews. And, and here now they've got a Jew in their hands who claims to be the king of the Jews. And now they're going to have a little fun with him. And we're going to see that what they do to Jesus is way beyond just kind of a, a sick thing that maybe, uh, you know, Roman soldiers did to amuse themselves and, you know, distant parts of, of the Roman Empire. But I mean the vitriol, what, they, what, they, what comes out of their core in their treatment of Jesus uh, indicates that he represents the Jewish people to them. And it's it's awful what they do. They call the whole uh, garrison together to be a part of it. They clothed him uh, with purple. And uh, here they have, they've been to Rome. They've been a part of the Roman Empire. They've seen the Caesars. They've seen the robe. They've seen the garbs. They've seen all of the pomp, all of the pageantry that surrounds the emperors of Rome, the kings of Rome. And what king or emperor is uh, worth his salt doesn't have a robe. And so now in a mocking fashion, they take a, 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 a robe and, uh, of purple, uh, the Roman kind of color of royalty and they placed it on him and then they twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head they didn't place it there they twisted it on there and if you've ever seen what this crown of thorns was made of I mean the the thorns are like this they're like spikes and they twisted it in, uh, into his head through the skin down in uh, till it caught on the bone and, and was secure there and, I mean, I've just had this Mohs surgery on my, my third one on my forehead. And, I mean, it's still, every beat of my heart, it still throbs uh, a month later. 
Uh, imagine having this twisted down in the entire circumference uh, of your head and the nerve endings that are in the head. I mean, I, there's half of my, a quarter of my head, half of my scalp I can't feel because of the nerves that were cut related to that. They said it'll come back, but it might take as long as a year for that to happen. And here Jesus has this uh, uh, taken and, and, uh, and has it twisted uh, upon his, his head. And then they began to uh, salute him in a mocking way. Hail, King uh, of the Jews, laughing. I mean, this is what the Jews put forward as a king. And you can imagine it. I mean, in in their minds, they've seen, again, all of the majesty of Rome and concerning the emperors of Rome. And then here stands Jesus, now a bloody mess. And, uh, and now delivered to be crucified. And he stands silent before his accusers. It's like, what kind of a king is this? The very best king. A king like no other. King of kings and Lord of lords. But they have no appreciation for it at, at, at this moment. And then they began, we're told in one of the other gospels, they gave him a reed, a stick, as a scepter. What good is a king without a scepter? And, uh, and then here we're told that they took the scepter back from him, evidently, and then they began to strike him on the head with that crown of thorns, with the reed, and then they spat on him. And uh, this is just disgust. This is, this is going beyond, uh, we're going to disable someone now for crucifixion, and this has become personal now in terms of, uh, of spitting on him. Uh, they have a disgust of him as a, a representative of the Jewish people. And then bowing the knee, they then uh, began to worship him in um, a mocking fashion. It is, it is interesting. I hope that all of these, all 600 of them uh, uh, came ultimately to put their faith in the Lord. Uh, I, I don't know it. I don't doubt it. I don't know anything about uh, the, the 600. But uh, one day, as is, is you're aware, the Bible teaches, Philippians chapter 2, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess and wouldn't, wouldn't it be horrible to have been a part of this scene and then one day having rejected him themselves to stand in that heavenly scene and to realize the one we mocked was exactly who he said he was. And then to bow the knee before Jesus, not unto salvation, but unto damnation and, uh, and, uh, and conviction of the greatest sin anyone can ever commit, and that is a lifelong rejection of Jesus as, uh, as a Savior. And then when they had mocked him, they take the purple off of him, put his own clothes back on him, and they led him uh, out to, uh, to crucify him. Verse 21, uh, they then uh, compelled uh, a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by. They compelled him then to bear uh, Jesus' cross. This gives us an indication of uh, how badly, uh, uh, what bad physical shape Jesus was in uh, even before he got to the cross. He was unable to carry uh, even the crossbar uh, of the cross to the place of his crucifixion. I mean, the, the scourging was supposed to be a half death. Uh, they took it even further than that. 
and they realize this man is never going to be able to carry that cross, the, 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 the horizontal bar of the cross, up to Golgotha in order to be crucified. We need to find someone who will carry it uh, for him. And so, uh, as a result, they uh, find a, see a man who's passing by, uh, by the name of Simon. He's from the city of Cyrene, northern, northern Africa, probably uh, a proselyte, someone who had converted to Judaism. It isn't unlikely that he saved his entire life and somehow found a vacation time or whatever it might be in those days. And the one time in his life he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to celebrate the Jewish feast of Passover. And as he's making his way on this main road uh, into Jerusalem, uh, he sees someone who is obviously guilty of a capital crime. Uh, crucifixion was common throughout the entire Roman Empire, which stretched into uh, North Africa as well. And he sees all of this going on. And suddenly a Roman soldier comes to him and compels him to now carry this man's cross. And how he might have just thought, oh no, the one time I get to come and now I'm going to be delayed and my, uh, my name is going to be associated now with a, uh, somebody who is guilty of a capital crime and carrying their cross to the place of, of the, the crucifixion. And the, Roman, the Romans had the freedom to compel uh, any, anyone in the Roman Empire to do that. Uh, they had, uh, as a part of kind of the laws related to Rome, they, uh, a Roman uh, soldier could come to any civilian, tap them on the sh shoulder with their sword, and then compel them to carry a burden for a distance only of one mile. And you remember when Jesus said, uh, when somebody compels you to go one mile, go two miles in the Sermon on the Mount. When they compel you to go one mile, you don't like it, do you? I mean, they're forcing you to do something you'd rather not do. But take the upper hand now in that situation by now voluntarily going the second mile. And now they're no longer in control of the situation, but you're in the control of the situation. And he's using this imagery. And we talk about going the extra mile, or the second mile is a saying within our culture. And so... There's a distance of less than a mile between the, the site of uh, Jesus' scourging and this abuse at, at the praetorium to the place he's going to be crucified. And, uh, and so uh, here is, uh, is uh, uh, Simon uh, being compelled to, to do so. And, and, uh, and they didn't, the Roman soldiers didn't compel Simon to carry Jesus' cross any, out of any kind of compassion. Uh, upon Jesus. They, they just want to get this job over with now. And they realize, listen, we, we've, we've left him in such a mess that he can't carry the cross himself. And certainly no Roman was ever going to carry a cross uh, for uh, somebody that was guilty of a capital crime. And they weren't going to find any religious Jews that would uh, be willing to do uh, that either. And so here they see this pilgrim, obviously from another part of the world, and they compel him now uh, to carry that cross. He's mentioned as the father of Alexander and Rufus, and there's some speculation that perhaps Simon uh, became a Christian ultimately. As a result of all of this, Rufus uh, is mentioned in the closing of Paul's letter to the Romans, and uh, this might be Mark's way of making mention uh, of, 
of both of them here, uh, of, of Alexander and Rufus here in the account, because he knew that perhaps, uh, knew that both of them uh, had become Christians at this point, and he wanted to make mention to them of their father's actions concerning uh, Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Whatever the case is, what an incredible privilege that Simon of Cyrene has for his name to forever be associated with Jesus uh, in, in this way. Any one of us in this room as a Christian would consider it a privilege to, to have done anything to help Jesus in, in that scene. And so they brought him to the uh, and they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. That was the place where they did the crucifying uh, outside of the city walls in Jerusalem. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. It was customary for when someone was going to be crucified, uh, prior to the driving in of the nails and the hands and the feet, and uh, imagine the absolute explosion of pain that must be in, involved in something uh, like that. And uh, what they would do is they would offer wine uh, to the person that was going to be crucified before this part of, of the, this, uh, the sequence of events would uh, occur in order to somehow deaden the pain that was uh, about due to arrive. And then apparently the Roman soldiers is just one final horrible thing uh, to do to, to Jesus, they took an added gall to the wine, which is a, a, bitter, uh, a, a bitter substance to the wine in order to make it undrinkable for him. And we know from the other Gospels that he took one taste and, he wouldn't, uh, and then he wouldn't uh, drink it. And uh, even here he's denied uh, this little bit of, uh, of, of comfort. And then uh, and when they crucified him, and those one, two, five words, the first five words of verse 24 are, are so powerful. Uh, and it's interesting when you read the account of Jesus' crucifixion in terms of the actual nailing him to that cross and, and the crucifixion, the description is very, very terse. It's, it's very, very uh, tight. There's no elaboration on the driving of the nails, there's no elaboration uh, of, of then the cross being lifted up and dropped into the hole and all of that. It, it is, he was crucified. And I think th there may be two reasons for that, for uh, the tightness of the description of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels. Number one is that everyone in the Roman Empire already knew what crucified uh, means. Uh, they're not separate. They weren't separated as we are, uh, 2,000 years, and uh, the other side of the world separated from uh, watching and understanding what happened when a person was crucified. They'd all seen it. They understood what it meant to be crucified. There was no need to, uh, you know, to give a detailed instruction of it. And I think that another reason may be for how tight this, uh, this declaration that Jesus was crucified is, is in order that, even for us, that in any description of His crucifixion, that we would never ever get lost in all of the pain, all of the blood, all of the agony of it, and stop there alone. 
but, but to realize and to always have at the forefront of his crucifixion why he was being crucified. And that is in order to provide us with the forgiveness uh, of sins. And so there they, they crucified him. And again, driving the nails in the hands and in, in the feet uh, while he's lying there on, uh, on the cross. Then they would begin to lift the cross up by degrees, the base of it in this uh, hole in the ground until finally they got it up and it would thud down into, uh, into, the, into the ground. And then they would put shims in it to hold it in place until the prisoner uh, died. And, uh, and, and so began... Uh, what uh, uh, Josephus uh, declared to be, you know, one of the most horrifying deaths that a person could, could ever die was death by, by crucifixion because it was this uh, pulling against the nails and pushing against the nails and the feet in order to uh, rise up, in order to draw a breath in. Uh, and then to hold that breath and then to go uh, down. And then to realize that another breath is going to cost me pushing against that nail and pulling on those nails once again to fill my lungs. And Jesus on that cross alive uh, for six hours. How many breaths do you breathe in six hours? Until ultimately what happened when a person on the cross, on the basis of their strength, their own personal constitution, that's what made a crucifixion every one of them different is what is the strength and the, the constitution, the physical constitution, the mental, the emotional constitution of the human being that's crucified? And how long will they last on the basis of, uh, of all of that? But nobody escaped the measuring of every breath. And for six hours, Jesus breathed in and experienced all that anybody else would ever experience in, in being crucified. He was fully God and fully man all at the same time. And what would ultimately happen to the person on the cross is they would finally come to a place where they did not have the strength or the willingness to endure the pain of pulling themselves up to, uh, to draw in another breath and ultimately they would die of suffocation or heart failure uh, there on the cross. And this was the means by which uh, the the uh, the Romans. Uh, uh, this is the means by which death was accomplished uh, by way of of uh, uh, crucifixion. One of the cruelest ways in, in in which to kill a person and to do it publicly as as a, a desire to to produce a deterrent toward crime within within the Roman Empire. The the origin of crucifixion is fascinating to me and and for a biblical reason. Uh, it originated in Persia, and its origin came from the fact that uh, the Persians considered uh, the earth, the soil, the ground to be sacred uh, to their god, uh, Orzmund, and uh, Ormuzd. And, and so a criminal was to be lifted uh, up from the ground in order that he would die and not touch the earth and, and defile it as a result because the earth was considered this God's property. And then uh, from Persia, crucifixion passed on to Carthage in North Africa. And it was in, from Carthage that the Romans learned of it. And the Romans then made it their means of, 
of, uh, of execution, but they considered, it, uh, considered crucifixion to be so inhumane uh, that it was forbidden that any Roman citizen would ever be crucified. It was to be reserved for slaves and for foreigners and for insurrectionists and rebellion, uh, 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 rebels and, and the worst uh, kind of, of criminals. And the reason that I think all of this is fascinating, the reason that I mention it, is that in the Old Testament Scriptures that prophesied concerning the death of the Messiah, the description of the Messiah's death is that he would die by crucifixion. The, the reason that that is fascinating is, number one, that the, that the Scriptures would declare that the Messiah would die at all, and yet they did declare that he would die. But you would think that if the, the Messiah was going to die at the hands of the Jews, that he would die not by crucifixion, but by stoning. Stoning was the means for the Jews uh, to deal with a capital criminal uh, based upon the Old Testament law, not crucifixion. And so the mention, even in the Old Testament, by Isaiah, that the Messiah would come into the world, he would die, and he would be crucified, indicated that the Messiah would come into the world and be born into a part of the world in which capital uh, criminals were uh, uh, put to death by means of crucifixion. And all of it happened exactly as Jesus was born in the time of, of the Roman Empire and suffered the death that God declared that He would, knowing He would be born into the world during the reign of the Roman Empire, an empire that used crucifixion as its means for, for uh, capital uh, punishment. A, f a fascinating one, even in His death, even in the means of His death, uh, all of it testifies to his claim uh, to be Messiah and, and the Son uh, of, uh, of God. And so they crucified him, and then they divided his garments. He didn't have much. And uh, they cast lots for them to determine what every man, the guards that were at the base of the cross, should take. And uh, he apparently had a robe that was of some value, maybe made by the women that were part of his uh, followers. But they, they viewed it as valuable. And let's say you've got four Roman soldiers that are a part of this whole scene. They look at it, say, if we cut that in four pieces, it'll be worthless to four people. And uh, in, in four pieces, let's cast lots, and then the one of the four that gets it will have something valuable to sell or to use themselves. And so, uh, and so they did. And it was uh, about, uh, it was the third hour, nine in the morning, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above. This was customary for the Jews to put the accusation, what the, the, the criminal that was dying of, of what crime he had committed. Pilate, you might remember from the other Gospels, declared uh, that this was to be written and put above the head uh, of Jesus, the King of uh, the Jews. And this is the reason that he was uh, being uh, crucified. Not merely because uh, he claimed to be the King of the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders didn't believe it. He was being crucified because he was and he is the king of the Jews and the king of, of the whole world. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand, the other on his left. 
So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was uh, crucified between two thieves, even as the Old Testament prophecies uh, declared. And those who passed by this scene of, of Jesus upon the cross, they blasphemed him. The word blasphemy, it means uh, injurious speech. It's made up of two words that mean speech and injurious. So here you've got this, the, these people, and in, 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 in the most, uh, the, the vilest of all are the Jewish religious leaders. And, and, and they, I'm so disgusted by them. And, and, but, but don't misunderstand my disgust. I'm disgusted by it because the same capacity is in me. And, and the, it's the desire to never be that kind of a leader in the body of Christ. To never walk down those paths that take you where it took them. Where money and property and, and being highly esteemed is, is more important than being right with God. And, and so here they begin. There's nothing more they can do to Him physically. They cannot injure Him any more than they have injured Him physically as He, as he hangs upon that cross. But these people are not content. Now they're going to go after his mind. Now they're going to go after his emotions. Now they're going to torment his mind and his heart as he hangs upon the cross. And so they do. And that was the intent of the blasphemies. And they blasphemed him while he hung there. And some of them, they wagged their heads, and which was a, a, a sign of disgust. And they said, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. And, uh, and here they mocked his teaching, and they twisted his teaching and what it meant, but they throw it back uh, in, in his face, and they declare, You who can uh, destroy a temple and build it in three days. He said, save your, they said, Save yourself and come down uh, from uh, the cross. And likewise, the chief priests, uh, they also mocked among themselves with the scribes, and they said, he, sa uh, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Fascinating statement that the Jewish religious leaders make concerning uh, Jesus. No truer words by friend or foe were ever spoken of Jesus not in the course of his entire lifetime, and not in, 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 at the scene of, of, that, of his crucifixion, when they declared he saved others, himself he cannot save. Because in order to save others, he could not save himself. He could have come down from that cross in an instant. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter is going to defend him by hacking the ears off of servants there in the crowd, and Jesus says, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could, I could call 12 legions of angels right now and put an end to this entire scene? It's not out of control. And, and, uh, uh, but in order to save us, he couldn't save himself. But it's fascinating. They declared he saved others. They knew it to be true about him. And they, they knew that from one end of Israel to the other for three and a half years, he had raised people from the dead. He had cleansed the lepers. He had healed people of their diseases. They recognized the truth of, of his claims and the truth of these, uh, these reports. And yet they crucify him 
in, in the face of it. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. I mean, you would think that to believe what Jesus had done in the lives of others, you would say, he saved others, and maybe he will save me. But that's not where their heart was. And they uh, mocked his claim to be uh, the Messiah and then declared, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him, the thieves, uh, they cried out uh, the same thing. Give us this miracle, and then we'll believe that you uh, are, uh, are the Messiah. Nothing would have changed their, their mind. And when it was the sixth hour uh, at uh, noon, when that had come, uh, there was darkness over the whole land until uh, the ninth hour. And uh, the, uh, the entire scene for three hours is shrouded in, in darkness, uh, uh, the uh, supernatural darkness during, those, uh, during those, those three hours. And I think that one of the reasons that that darkness descends upon uh, the entire situation there is uh, one of the reasons is, is that God the Father was uh, declaring and, and making known His presence there in, in the situation. And that it was a father's son that hung uh, upon uh, that, that cross. And, uh, and, and he was making uh, the, his presence there, his commentary uh, concerning the cross. They were making all of their commentaries known. God the Father says, I'll make uh, my commentary known. I'll tell you by this great miracle how this death of Jesus is viewed in heaven. It's viewed as a time of great darkness, the greatest darkness in human history. And so he shrouds the, the entire scene in darkness because it was a dark, dark scene. And I, th I think there are lots of reasons for which the darkness descended, but I think that's supreme uh, above all. And then at the ninth uh, hour, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, uh, and which is translated, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you've been around here for any length of time, of, of all of the seven things that Jesus spoke uh, on the cross. And it's interesting to notice about the seven statements of Jesus upon the cross. They're worth studying, by the way. And Warren Wearsby has a great book uh, on that. But everything that Jesus spoke upon the cross, uh, uh, everything he spoke was very, very short. Again, speaking about the difficulty he was having uh, breathing and being able to speak. And, but here he, he declares, My God, my God, speaking to, his, uh, to God the Father, why have you forsaken me? And to me it's the most haunting words of the, the entire scene. Something happens within the Godhead. Some mysterious uh, a, a, a breaking, a forsaking. I won't speak into it any more than that, but something that had never happened between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and will never happen again happened as Jesus bore during uh, those hours upon the cross our sin. As Paul put it to the church at Corinth, he, who, he that is the Father made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in, in Him. And, and here is this, uh, Jesus is alone on the cross. 
in a way that we can't even understand alone. He is not only alone in terms of human beings, in terms of friends, in terms of those who are, are around Him. He is alone uh, in, in some kind of way in terms of, of the fellowship with the Father. In order that I might be saved, it's so humbling. I, I don't know how to put it into words. And then some of those who stood by, the, the Roman soldiers, when they heard him speak that, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, speaking Aramaic, they knew, they knew Aramaic, which was uh, the language of, of that day, and they knew something a little bit about maybe Jewish religion, and they knew a little about, about Elijah supposed to come in their end times kind of prophecies and all. And so they mistook Jesus saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that he was calling uh, for Elijah to come and help him. And so then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put that sponge uh, uh, on a reed, offered it to him to drink, saying, uh, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out at that moment with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. And we will stop there uh, tonight in this study of our Savior's crucifixion and what He was willing to endure. Not for the whole world, yes, for the whole world, but not just for the whole world, but for you and for me. I mean, He knows all of us. He loves us in a way that we'll, we will never probably get our heads around it, not even in a complete way in eternity. I don't think so. He knows everywhere we've been. He knew when we lost our first tooth, fell off a bicycle, when our heart was broken by a boy or by a girl, or when we didn't get the Valentine's card that we wanted from the boy or from the girl when we were in the third grade or whatever. He's been through all of the highs and lows, and all of the highs and even the lows of our sin. And He knows us like nobody else knows us, and He knows us like we don't even know ourselves. Who could, you who could I find that would be willing to die to save me on a physical level, much less a spiritual level? And who would be willing to die that death to save someone like me and someone like you? And yet the very Son of God does it in order that you and I might sit here tonight born again filled with the Holy Spirit, in a relationship with God, forgiven of our sins, confident of one day being in, in heaven itself, but the enormous price that was paid in order to make it so. I, I live, and you and I, we live, and I'm aware of the time, by the way, and, but you and I, the, these blessings become what we live and move and have our being in. And how wonderful it is that it's described uh, once each in the four Gospels to just remind us of the price that was paid that we might enjoy the quality of life that we enjoy. Humbling, awesome, really. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.